Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. This is our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. What does it take to stand out in the world's most competitive clubbing market? By now, Alice Favre, Paul Jack and Will Harold, the team behind London Warehouse Events, have a pretty good idea. Since they started working together in 2010, the trio's been responsible for some of London's biggest and most distinctive dance music parties. A large part of this success has been their impressive knack for spotting potential venues. LWE's events at Tobacco Dock, Boston Manor Park, Printworks and Old Fountain Studios all basically stemmed from one of the teams seeing the space and thinking, wouldn't it be cool to do a party here? These days, LWE is as much about helping artists and brands realize their vision as it is about LWE realizing their own. With clients including Elro, Arcadia, Innervisions, and Richie Horton. Collectively, Alice, Paul and Will have decades of experience between them. Something that was obvious when they stopped by our London office recently to discuss their work and the state of play in the London scene. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and you can follow us on SoundCloud at r8-exchange. The exchange with LWE is up next. So hi guys, um, just start by introducing yourselves. Uh, hi, I'm Alice, I'm Operations Director for LWE. I'm Will Harold. I'm one of the directors at LWE and look after the booking. Uh, I'm Paul, I'm one of the directors at LWE and I sell tickets. You're all uh, fresh, uh, inverted commas, from Junction 2, which was uh, took place over the weekend. How did it go, firstly? It went really well. Yeah, very, very happy with it. We sold out three weeks in advance. The hype was massive and I hope that we lived up to the hype. Certainly from behind the scenes, uh, I was very happy and I think the authorities were too, so big tick from me. I mean, from my side with all the all of the artists and the general atmosphere and, and sort of music played, I thought it was great. There's some real standout highlights. Sonia Muneer and Nicholas Lutz in the Woods was, was incredible. It was such a great little stage that and I think they really captured what we were trying to do with it. Joy was good afterwards. Tale of Us stood out. Uh, we made the warehouse a bit bigger and, 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 and that that really showed that there's a, a kind of an appetite for some of that harder, slightly harder techno. Uh, and that was that was that was really positive just the spectacle of Dixon and Arm for, for six hours, kind of really getting some time to do that in a, in a festival environment so often it's one of the things that we sort of set out with Junction 2 to sort of not have the t- typical 60 minute sets that you find in other places and to give people them a sort of a, that time to do what they do was, was really nice and I think the, the real the real cherry on top was Adam and Carl and, uh, and they had what five hours between them played 90 minutes back to back at the end and that was for me that was a kind of a a real career highlight and was a was a a real moment the energy on that floor was next level it was i think anyone who's there saw something really special and heard something really special and i think it will stay with me for a long time um you guys are quite upfront in the description of the festival about the things that wouldn't be at the festival so i I don't remember the list off the top of my head but i remember no no vip was definitely one of them no short sets 
Um, yeah, no VIP, no short sets, no plastic tents, uh, good sound and like-minded people and attention to detail. I think it's what we try to do for all of our shows. I think sometimes people... Uh, they they book the lineup and they're really proud of the lineup. I mean, most people are promoters. We we're the exception. We're promoters, producers, and operators. So other people will hire a production company, and it means that you're slightly removed from what you're actually what your end product is on site. Whereas we start from booking the DJs and finding the site and really follow it through right through to execution. So yeah, yeah, I do feel like our our attention to detail is uh, is higher sometimes than other people. Do you think that's where things get a little bit lost in the festival experience, that there is a bit of a disconnection between the people making the bookings and then, you know, maybe, well, I was going to use the word vision, but, you know, the production company is a separate thing and maybe, you know, it's not harmonious or something? Yeah, sometimes. I think there are there are other promoters out there that also do a great job. I mean, look at Houghton last year. That was, an, that was a massive success. I'm sure that, you know, uh, Craig's the one that booked it. But the people that that ran it, I think it was Gotwood that were behind it, and and they're, they're they're similar. They're promoters and producers and operators as well, and so they're very much on the ground. But I do feel that if you book a production company, however good that production company is, they're working on twelve other shows across the summer. All of their work is condensed into those sort of twelve to sixteen weeks over the summer, and it's a very hard feat to to understand sixteen different shows worth of detail and to really understand what what they want on site. So. Um, yeah, I think we've got got a unique. There's something unique about about doing it from start to finish. I think as well, it's um, it's enormously difficult putting on a festival in London. Let's make no bones about it. And I think actually, if you had the best team in the world, you it's really challenging trying to you you walk such a tightrope between the product you're trying to deliver, the fan, the customer experience, the authorities, look the artist experience. And where all of those things converge as a promoter, you're under an absolutely enormous amount of pressure. And I mean, people complain about sound at lots of shows, and of course, the promoters want it to be louder. It's actually the sort of it's 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 the restrictions of neighbours and residents and those kind of things. And in some cases, rightly so. And in other cases, I think there could be a bit more flexibility. But it's kind of it's it's a very, it's a very very difficult thing to do. I think from our side, the potential issues show when shows grow. I think year one was a new experience delivering the show, but actually at a far lower capacity. And so as those shows grow in popularity and you set certain expectations in year one for how the show feels, year two the show, for year one for us the show lost an immense amount of money, year two the show was a great show but still really didn't deliver financially for us. This year, the show sold out in advance, delivered okay financially. We're, cer- we're certainly not kind of buying new boats. But I mean, we're, do, I mean, to, be, to, be, to be honest, we're, we're still paying back the debt from year one. Well, and, and, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's like, so we're what we're going to be into year four of a festival and we won't have made a penny out of it. Was it, that always to be expected? Was that was in the plan? No, I think, no, I think show... Are behind or...? I think, I think shows like us, yeah. I mean, I think we, we always over-invest in production, direction, the cost, the style of the location. These are expensive things to deliver and I think as the capacity grows that's where the growing pains show and for us delivering this year for me one of the concerns was to see what would be the difference with the extra capacity on site did the show have growing pains this year yes it did are there growing pains that took away from the show no but also things that allow us to learn to realize actually I think the show is at the size it can be and really it's for us to kind of adjust a few tweaks a few changes here and there to actually deliver the same experience people had with slightly less people the year before. Last year on site, it was again, it was a it was a perfect year again. Uh, but for, in terms of egress, when everybody leaves, it wasn't the simplest. We so for this year, we near, our security bills two and a half times what it was last year. We had a hundred and sixty eight staff externally just for the way in, and for when people left, that bolstered up to two hundred and ten staff externally. I mean, that's a huge amount of people. That's a mixture of SIA security, who obviously aren't cheap, traffic marshals, stewards, uh, and then management. I mean. The different the distances between the front gates and the stations was a total of two and a half kilometres, and we had to cover that with stewards at least every sort of 150 metres. So I mean, yeah, I think there's no fun, mean feat. 
I think funny with the fact we had so much stuff, all the bases covered. Even on the day, me and Alice discovered another street, another set of alleyways, another potential route where actually no one going to the show would know they're there. But local kids or people that live in the area would guess that if they climbed through that bush, ran across the cricket pitch, they could climb across the water and get into the show. And suddenly it was kind of like, oh, didn't think of that one. And yet we thought we'd covered every way in. Yeah, and that's how next year, you know, that's another £5,000 worth of... <laughs> <laughs> What's it like in the aftermath, though? Are you able to um, sort of toast to all of the like, the great experiences and the good elements of it, or are you kind of fixated on the details and the tweaks for next year? I mean, what's that balance St- like? Straight after the show... Uh, I mean, these two had to go to the after party. I stayed on site with my kind of core operations team and uh, we definitely raised a few glasses. I was absolutely buzzing after the show. I spent a long time with licensing and the police on site during the show and they both left seemingly very happy and uh, with talks for the future. So that was that was great news from my side. So I was very happy. So um, it's a big hurdle. Yeah, massive hurdle, especially from the year before. You know, there was a few grumbles from local residents and from the police um, and the council so I think yeah we've we've ticked all those boxes for this year and uh, yeah very much looking forward to next year but I think from from a afterwards I think the next day afterwards you're always on a massive high uh, then you start reading the comments online and there's that they're all generally generally really positive and I think people have trust in us as promoters the, the things that weren't perfect we will strive to fix next year we're not the sort of people who just go oh well it doesn't matter I we can make think, a bit more money i think it's hard to get excited on the day of the show i think the show you see very little of it really i think you spend most of your time from our side going from stage to stage talking to people never really spending enough there to kind of absorb what the show is but knowing it and then it's the post show the next few hours or the next day really you get to reflect on the comments you get the feedback from people you start reflecting on your own thoughts from it a bit more and it it, it kind of sinks in that actually it was a successful show and we we kind of went out there and achieved what we wanted to i was stood with them with one particular agent or agent or manager on one of the stages and i'd been with them for about five minutes and i was like i'm sorry i've got to go and he said why Where have you got to go and i said well everything's fine here so basically i just continue my little roaming from stage to stage and just trying to look for anything that isn't fine and if everything's good and everyone's enjoying themselves i tend to move on so it's kind of i spent i walked the best part of 40 kilometers on the day oh, wow. and and just kind of yeah, I, I find it really hard to stay still. And if, if everything's good and the music's good and everyone's having a good time, generally I'm moving on. And that's that's quite weird from a booker's point of view. But I think, again, comes back to the, the fact that we're we're quite operationally focused and, and, and all, all involved in that. And, and just I think all of us are just you know, want to make sure that it, where you can spot those things early. If there's something not right, you can tweak it and change it and, uh, and make a difference. Yeah, I think you spend your show circling from stage to stage, like Will says. Is it really you're you're never really spending too long there because the conversations you get pulled into, your your brain is really thinking what's happening down the road or what's happening on that stage or is that okay and or you're kind of going off to meet someone and sort something out. And reality is, you are constantly moving. Um, I certainly had pain, painful feet afterwards, but. <laughs> Could you talk me through the process of firstly finding the site and identifying it as a you know as a potential uh, venue for a festival, and then the bit afterwards? Like, what's the process? Who do you speak to? What are the steps that need to be taken to getting something like this off the ground? This was as random as we we'd been looking loosely looking for a festival site for uh, a couple of years at least. I would have thought, and I think we'd committed that we'd always done things a little bit differently or we'd always felt that we'd done things a little bit differently to to other promoters in London and we didn't want to enter a market which was already crowded and have a, a kind of a, an, another event which where you're just fighting over talent and there's not a point of difference and so that's why our hunt had gone on for a, for a little while and Alice and I were driving down the M4 back towards Dorset and we could went over the flyover towards the GlaxoSmith Klein building and we'd see the treetops and some greenery and it was simple as just going, hmm, what's down there? Dropping a pin. And I think then you two, you guys, you guys went back without me to go and to go and investigate. I I, I used to live there very, very near it. So my my daughter had a third birthday party in the park. For, For me, I grew up in the area, so I used to cycle underneath that bridge with quite a few of my friends used to think it was a fairly decent place for an event. Um, it didn't really actually cross my mind it was viable because in reality I know how residential it is, but, I mean, it, it is. 
Unbelievably <laughs> so. Yeah, but it works. I mean, I think that's the, the... I still It still boggles me to, as you walk into the site, walk past all the houses, walk through the gate. It is unbelievably residential. Uh, and it, so, it's, yeah, it's so how do you... How do you go about convincing the necessary people that it will be okay? Like, what's what does that look They'd like? They never had a festival on site in that borough. In that oh no, location. they had. They had, didn't they? Because didn't they, they have? Well, the, they uh, didn't have a barbecue. They, they had. They had. They had like a, a charity event. They had a, an Australian barbecue in there. But what they didn't have was an electronic music event. So the reality of us approaching them was they really didn't know what they were signing up to um so it, it almost there wasn't a precursor for us to work against yes. it, it's easy almost to kind of go in there and say this is what we're proposing this is our experience yeah i mean also when the first thing you do is you look at the site and yes it is residential around there but once you walk in the gates and you walk under the m4 the other side of the site is one side of the glaxo smith climb building and the other side is a massive cement works and skies huge kind of studios and offices their hq so you've got like maybe a 360 degree circle you've maybe got 210 degrees that have got no residents around so all your sound fires that way uh i mean the nearest residents are, are really really close but just the, the m4 blocks out all of that sound and the sound underneath the bridge as well is obviously contained by the top of the bridge but then as you get to the end of the bridge it goes up a hill so all the sound hits the, that hill and then goes up into the m4 again so from a sound point of view it's perfect the only thing was year two uh, was the first year that we had the hex the outdoor stage where which sonus hosted and um, we had 50 mile an hour winds that were heading towards ealing so uh, that was that caused quite a few complaints last year and luckily we had no wind this year so it was okay and we reorientated the stage so even if it had been windy i think we would have we would have been okay. Do we need to uh, think about whether Paul's allowed to say the council didn't know what they signed themselves up for <laughs> in, in that, in that <laughs> Council so, had um, no idea what we're going to do. So with all of these uh, venues you've used since the uh, time you've been working together, um, there's no set process as such. These are places you're kind of hearing about or stumbling across. It, like it's evolved, I think, a little bit. I mean, to start with, it was either hearing about or stumbling across that kind of thing. And now at the moment, we've got someone in the office who's, I would say, 60, 70% of their role is just constantly hunting for new space, whether that's outdoor or warehouse locations or whatever. So how um, did like old Fountain Studios? That, that, that came from them. There's a, oh, lot, really? a, a lot of hunting and, uh, and and through a recommendation through someone that we'd, we'd, we'd worked with up near that site before, introduced us and... Uh, uh, yeah, we, we'd, look, we'd actually seen the site previously and it wasn't available and then they, they put us in touch with the people who'd taken it on. So, yeah, that, which was, it was great to do some shows up there. I thought the sound was amazing and, uh, and I thought we're hopefully going to go back and do a few more. There is, a, there is definitely a certain element of stumbling across and being lucky, to be honest, with these sites. I mean, Tobac Tobacco Dock was no more, no more found, but uh, for me and Alice walking past it, sticking our head through the gates and thinking... Wow, that would be a great, great place to have an event, and then trying to kind of work out who we'd need to speak to. How do we find, work out the possibilities of making a show happen in there? I mean, like like Will said, spot, spotting Junction Two, crossing over the top of the motorway. And, you know, we we see pictures, look at maps, and if something jumps out, then we kind of try and go and explore it. So around the time uh, Printworks was opening, I uh, felt like there was a lot of talk within the London club community uh, about the fact that this was coming at sort of not a moment too soon. You know, people were really holding it up as, you know, this really significant new thing uh, for London and it was sort of much needed. Why do you think people were saying that? What were people crying out for at that moment in time? I think there's been there'd been a lot of... Um sort of public closures or ends of areas. I think obviously Fabric was in the middle of its licensing issues, which have thankfully been resolved. There was, there's, I can't remember what's the name of the other place. It was just up here, um, Passing Clouds. Uh, that was all going on. And so it was, just, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of um, sort of hype in the media about clubs closing, clubbing, dying, the usual sort of scaremongering. And I think this came along and was, I think there'd been other, other, other sort of big new ventures that maybe hadn't quite hit the mark. And I think this came along and, and ticked a lot of boxes and, and people were really excited by it. But I think a lot of it was just the, the state of the media at that point. Do you think that the, it was overblown, the reporting of the state of the scene around that time? Um, I think I think, I think it, was, it was definitely, there was a press thoroughly enjoyed scaremongering kind of what is happening with licensing. And I think 
to, to, to be blunt about it, we there was a, a certain element of strategically take, taking what was going on out there and converting into something that allowed us to launch a space because it, it allowed us to take bad news and offer good news in that space. And stri- strategically, it being being in a building that was a press-associated building, a print factory, adding that story into a bad licensing and launching the biggest license in London, suddenly you had something that became incredibly press-worthy. And by teasing teasing out the existence or the promise of this space, um, it, it created a lot of natural hype. I mean, I think we spent a good three, four months prior to the launch, which was inviting key press down inviting people down to see it allowing people to have kind of snippets of the building in mind before it got released so there was almost the story of that building came ahead of it the announcement mm. and so it certainly yeah, helped it sort of yeah the seeds were sown for it i guess it's been i forget how long since you were since you last through an event there but like how do you reflect on the on the seasons that you did there I mean, the last, the last ever show thrown in there was the first of January twenty eighteen. I mean, that, that was the last show under our our, our yeah. stewardship, really. From my point of view, it's something that I'm enormously proud of. I think that as a team, we created something really special, and uh, and I think we we with the two seasons that we did, it was it was something that kind was a real again a real highlight, and we're yeah, I think quite happy to have done that moved on and uh, looking for looking for new pastures did you have any personal highlights I think just sort being, of any any standout shows i think seeing the first one personally for me kind of watching it watching it happen and start was a mixture of will it work will is it as exciting to to us as it is to other people okay um i think being being there to establish it, put it on the map and kind of bring something unique to London to us is what's exciting. I mean, bizarrely, as a promoter, I, f- I find it exciting doing new things. And I do do have to say after the 20th show there and a consecutive week from my perspective, it was less and less exciting. But if I'd seen it individually, it was just as exciting. So mm-hmm. I, I'm more inclined by less shows in all, and split across alternative locations okay. rather than in one but building. Did, did you wind up in some sort of creative differences anyway? I, I didn't quite know what the story was. Uh, creative differences, no. I'd say strategic differences due to a change of ownership and a, and the politics behind the building. It, it, it meant for us what was offered wasn't why we stayed or didn't want to stay. Yeah, I think operationally it was a massive feat for us. Um, it took up all of our full-time staff's you know, most of their time, it was an extremely uh, time-consuming project for everybody. And yeah, I, I just feel like g- going forward, they had a diff. They wanted to take a different pathway, um, not necessarily yeah, slightly creatively, slightly operationally. It just yeah, it just didn't feel right to stay there. We very much run our business based on our heart rather than um, what our Yes, rather than anything else. And so uh, it was better to part company at the time that we did. Would you say that there are any challenges in throwing uh, large-scale events that are particular to London? I was thinking when you were talking about the exit, for example, from Junction 2, and you know, you're thinking about the flow of people, you're thinking about people getting into the transport network. Uh, does London come with a particular set of challenges, would you say? Yeah, definitely. But that's also why, I mean, if you think about it, as LWE, we haven't, we haven't thrown a party in a, in a unique space, i.e. not a club, uh, that's been nighttime since, oh, I don't know, 2015, last time we did... Apart from this Saturday. What's happening this Saturday? Or well, last Saturday, a fabric. No, it's in a club. That's what I mean. In a club, we've done we've done stuff in clubs that's that's late night. But everything that we do in unique spaces is daytime. That was that was a partly a realization though of, of the the laws around sound and the the density of population. So if you've got a, a, a big building, you're going to be surrounded by some houses quite nearby, and as as a, you can get away with that at a five hundred a thousand cap warehouse party because you the the power for the sound that you need is is a bit lower and you can kind of you can not annoy the neighbours too much well, or they can be a little leaving. bit further away and people leaving but as you get up to two three four five thousand people you need be obviously there's much more impact on the local environment and that's just harder and harder to do and and I think that the realization we had when we found tobacco dock was that this was never going to be a late night space and so for us I think that's one of the things that I'm quite kind of proud of I feel like we're a big part of that shift to, to daytime parties and and when we did we did New Year's Day it was the first party we did in the tobacco dock and that was traditionally was a it could be a daytime party and then we did one in the summer 
and and that worked really well as well and then with the third one we did was drum code halloween and we it was for us that was the sort of the the the, the kind of the shift that was the shift and then we were like right if we can make a techno halloween show work in the daytime we've got this and we've yeah. done it and that that was it and and it, it worked amazingly and that's become a, one of our flagship shows and and i think that for us that's when we realized actually we could hopefully sort of shift a little bit of the culture and a little bit of the pattern and it, it was there was loads of other benefits in terms of it became a little bit easier to book DJs. It meant that our relationship with other venues in London weren't as strained because we weren't going up quite as um, as head to head with with the other venues in London because we were in the daytime and actually, in some ways, actually we were feeding some of the late night economy because people were going out. Then they were out. They wanted to stay out. Um, yeah, more DJs being available because you could, they could double up to shows in Europe. So it was kind of it was kind of win win. Yeah, uh, the neighbours are happy. The authorities are happy. Uh, it. It feels a little less edgy during the day. Yeah, I was going to say, ways. do you think there's a different dynamic for yeah, the crowd during the day? People turn up vaguely sober, so okay, yeah. <laughs> so it means you, you yeah, and and it, you know, a night a nightclub, you know, it's it's just a, it's a different environment doing something that carries on till seven eight in the morning, six seven eight in the morning. Um, it's yeah, it's just been a different atmosphere. It's very festival vibes during the day, even if it's. January or February. I think I think I'm, I think kind of without realizing it also helped to widen the amount of people who are going out once again. I think inadvertently where 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 events are running from 10 12 11 o'clock at night or 6 a.m. I think there's a you get to a certain age group and the reality is you're you're not staying out to those hours and you you still want to see the artist you still want to be in the environment but actually you've got kids you've got everything else and when realizing kind of doing stuff like tobacco dock and print works the age range is quite varied uh, by 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 being daytime it's I think there are, there are parts of our scene which are shrinking. And I think there is an element of it that is getting smaller. And I, by adding the daytime element to it, I think it's once again kind of added more people to it. There's more people going out. It's actually made it a stronger scene. So you feel like uh, maybe there are less uh, new people coming into the scene? Is that what you mean by that? I, I, don't, I don't think there is as many people coming into going out as they used to for regular club shows. Right. Yeah, I think there's been. I think we've seen a shift from regular club shows to special events, and I think all of that's linked into a much wider sort of sociological kind of thing. Of uh, I think everything from social media to iPhones and how people plan their time and and the, what music people are into. And I think that, that what's really interesting in talking to some of the kind of like the I don't know some of the younger people in our office that are coming in is that um, some of them see sort of raving in in, in inverted commas. As, as the activity and it's not and they'll go to a drum and bass party they go to a grime party they go to a techno party whereas I think when I was sort of starting out and I was I was very much into one sound and my taste might have changed over a period but a lot of these people see sort of yeah raving is going out and, uh, and an activity they do at the weekend so despite maybe the idea that there are less people coming into the scene do you think the marketplace in turn sort of remains about the same competitive level or does it feel like there are more parties being put on year on year i mean from the outside looking in london seems like an extremely competitive market it's the it's it's the hardest for me booking talent wise it's this the hardest it's ever been in the most competitive it's ever been and, and the the kind of the lengths you go to to secure the right talent on the right dates and 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 it is more and more difficult feat every year and i think it, what's interesting is how far ahead that we're having to book now and and we're talking about events at this sort of right through 2019 already and uh, and that's 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 that that kind of six to nine month booking window of booking ahead is really is really pushed on i feel like it's that maybe to clarify that I feel like it's a festival thing though as opposed to a club thing that it's not really the clubs that are fighting is it more that it's because there's only the same amount of clubs as when we were younger in London but I, th I think the festivals have played a big impact has a big impact on that um, and, the, and the, that kind of I mean talking to talking to the guys at Fabric or wherever that kind of removing from I don't know the start of May till the end of August and all the exclusive all the all the exclusivity that comes out that that has a knock on in, in effect for the for the clubs for sure but I think there's also part of that culture where I mean some of our events obviously got bigger and 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 the, when a show's were parties bigger it's on sale longer there's a longer lead time there's a greater call for exclusivity so yeah and I think that's I mean in some ways that's not a bad thing because I think there's definitely some some artists that are totally overplaying this market and I think that's that's one of the other hard things that we've had to start 
finding a balance on is is, is kind of you realise some for some 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 DJs you can see them they've got a show on sale all the time as soon as one finishes the next one's announced there's no there's no period when you can't buy a ticket to see X artist kind of thing and it's and that's that that make that has a big impact as well. I mean, do you think there's a antidote to what we're talking about, or do you think that it would just be a case of like the market forces will naturally dictate that some promoters will fall off? Exactly that. Only- I mean, I think one of the things that I I always find difficult is the people um, being blunt. They kind of play it being promoter. Maybe their people have got a, they've got another job that pays them quite well, and they decide they want to put a party on for a thousand people for some of their friends. And commercially, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, uh, uh, and it that they 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 want to book X DJ that's their favourite DJ, and so if they want to pay twice the going rate because that's who they want to book on that date, and that 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 has an impact on the market definitely, and and is something that that kind of I think makes sort of people who are promoters for a living it it, it definitely it definitely kind of winds me up because it's uh it it has an impact on on what we're doing and then it's very hard to go backwards from a dj feed they never they never come back down do they no, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that it's the people playing uh dj promoter either it's just people trying to buy their way into the market That's true as well. there because there aren't i don't see that there aren't that many people playing at being promoters anymore i more feel that the people pushing up dj prices is because it's this is why we attempt to find venues that have a usp because then you know that you know pe- people want to come and play for you rather than it being about who can spend the most money to get mm. said act so you're saying look sorry this is all that this venue can afford and if you really want to come and play here that's the maximum fee that we can allow whereas if you've got two generic clubs that are the same or not generic but two clubs two, that are the same or size two, or two promoters in the same space yeah uh, no, yeah two competing for the same talent which is often the case as well yeah, and then and then it's just about who's got a bigger wallet, basically, and that's not good for the scene at all. I think I think we've we've kind of obviously the ma- the mass growth of social media, but I think it, it has made the world a much smaller place, and the the it, it, it's it's kind of good, but also I think slightly depressing to be honest. Is whatever country you go to and whatever place you go, do you, you have a very similar roster of artists playing. It's the same and twenty acts, isn't it? It's I mean, the same, same twenty, 20 acts, acts that, that everyone's scrapping over, and, and and unfortunately, the ones underneath that aren't necessarily. Yeah, it's yeah, just it's, that it's the hype acts at that at that moment, or the or the really established ones, anyway. It's not. It's not. It's not London that's necessarily pushing up the price itself. It's, no, no, it's people being paid in Europe, Germany, US is reflecting everywhere else, and they can go. I'm being paid X amount here. Then you're going to pay the same amount of money. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the global market's definitely been a fact in terms of taking uh, tying up DJ dates as well in the same way as we. As I, mean, we're talking about I, I went on holiday to to New York or where we went together, basically. And you, you looked at a poster, basically, and you just went, "Oh wow!" I, I mean, this is exactly the same as a party I see in London. And yeah, there's no I difference see. to it. I mean, do you think it's the case that there's a relatively small pool of headliners? Yes. yes. Uh, again, a, num- a number of reasons, and I think that, again, the sort of the, the kind of social media currency of, of those acts and, and when, when, the, the hype spreads much faster. And, and I see. And I think that, that I think part of me thinks that the, that the younger generation have quite a short, quite a short attention span, and someone can be really hot for six, nine months, and and then right. it dips away again. And I think it's, but I, I don't know. It's, there's a lot of different factors involved in that. I think people people are people get caught up in the flow of things as a reality. And so if you look at someone playing big shows in Germany or wherever or Berlin or wherever it is, basically they'll go. Suddenly a promoter goes in another country, goes, well that artist is big, so I'm going to book them, and it has a natural chain reaction. Suddenly each place does the same thing, because in each country you've got a, a different audience who's looking at another place video and just going, oh wow, that's that's the headline act, and suddenly that world gets smaller and smaller. And there's because people are so desperate to sell tickets and they're not willing to take risks. The reality is these acts that they experiment in other places aren't getting a look in because it's a safer bet to pay more money to buy a bigger artist uh, so that's really true and i think that's one of the things that's kind of um hard about being a promoter is that sometimes there's the people you'd really like to book because of um because of what you what you really what you're, you're into what they're doing musically but if that doesn't translate or you or what you've got to try and do is then bring these acts through and uh, and, and put them you see what a big artist is going to sell the tickets then you put someone else that you're really into that's not going to sell any tickets underneath them and hopefully try and sort of blood them and build their audience but it's really hard and often mm. often what you do is you do that three or four times you build up an act a bit to a certain level and then then everyone starts booking and if he goes through the roof and it's kind of pointless anyway so is yeah, that, that, all, that, all that investment and time kind of trying to build someone up doesn't, doesn't always work 
Um, I wanted to think a little bit about the uh, the model you sort of established, which seemed to be almost immediate when you're doing the uh, parties at Great Suffolk Street. So um, we touched on the idea that you are more than like a, a standard promoter. I, I guess we could say, you know, you um, get into elements of production, you're very hands-on in what you're doing, you're producing uh, shows for other labels and brands. I was wondering what was behind that decision firstly, and was there anything in your sort of individual personal histories that like led to that decision? Um, I think the idea of LWE was that we, it, was a, it was a kind of almost that we didn't quite have a music policy and in some ways it, it actually what we stood for was all that some of the things we talked about earlier is that the this kind of production attention to detail interesting spaces um the fact we did everything ourselves and and some of it was was yeah working with people where they had established brands and 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 and, and that really worked for us since we've developed some 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 of our own but we still work with other people's brands and i think that that's a it's a really nice way to do it and from from my side i'd come from a background of always booking a club and so I'd, I'd always had the same four walls to book every week so for me the excitement of kind of working out what party you wanted to do and then finding exactly the right home for it or the other way around is sort of working out what's going to work really well in this different space that was a really exciting proposition for me rather than just having to book the same club week in week out so I think that those, those things all came together from my perspective I mean I think there was um, I mean the birth of LWE there was a, certainly an accidental right time right place kind of element to it is uh, uh, as as kind of matter uh, or matter matter yeah, basically kind of went under uh, the, the reality was there was there were shows that needed homes uh, and then they fell into to us using spaces which were available at the time which is a warehouse environment and the the warehouse environment excited us but seeing as it worked it definitely created excitement of doing something unique in those kind of spaces which which led us on to doing more shows I, I, I don't really think there was at that initial point in time was a real master plan of us kind of throwing a, a, a vast series of warehouse shows yeah, it just I worked I, f- I felt like we yeah we, we didn't so we didn't strategic. Ha- we certainly were <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> we I de- yeah I definitely don't think it was strategic I think but it was probably about two years in that we went oh do you want do you know what I think that we're like a hallmark we're like the facilitators for other brands yeah, we never really put ourselves front and centre you go to other people's parties and they're the promoter looking cool on stage and dancing with the DJs I'm usually like unblocking a toilet or moving barriers somewhere like I'm the least cool person at my party wearing the worst clothes and with my hair in a mess and dirt under my fingernails there's there's nothing cool and I mean you two are the same there's definitely nothing cool about either of you two <laughs> no, I think I think I think kind of by, by we were lucky also or kind of right time right place from the point of view that actually at the time as we're doing this artists started out venues used to dominate the scene that was the reality of it you know it was a fabric show, it was a matter show, it was a ministry of sound show. It was dominated by this. And uh, that power slowly dwindled in Clubland, really, and started moving very much to the artist and the br- and the label itself. And so it's sudden where where we dropped in was suddenly by 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 accident almost provided a very blank canvas environment for where it wasn't about the venue, it wasn't about the promoter, it was literally about the artist and the brand that came with it. It it allowed us to provide something they hadn't been offered before. And we, I mean, all of the flyers, if you look back, all of our flyers, our logo is the smallest thing on any flyer. You know, it definitely wasn't putting ourselves front and centre. It was more that ours was a little like kite mark hallmark at the bottom just to say this is produced by us so you know that by and large it will be a smoothly run event and you know that you know what you're going to have Uh, and yeah it was it was definitely about two years in that we suddenly realized that also the other thing is I find that if you start a brand that brand's probably got a shelf life of about 10 years that's 10 to kind of what we've seen with most brands after about 10 years you probably should shelve that brand and start something new whereas doing what we do we don't have that shelf life we can just move on to the next brand or the Mm. next artist and and we still continue has there never been that temptation though to sort of grow yourselves in the way that you are more in the spotlight no. to make that sort of slightly more egotistical move I guess you'd say I think I think the only temptation from my side and I think we've pushed it is for for there to be an acknowledgement of LWE being the brand behind these shows I think 
almost entering as a hub in a kind of a, a central part for it, which drives and helps give people confidence. And so we still do that and push LWU to the forefront for a handful of shows. You know, New Year's Day, there's a handful every so often that we do it. And that's really just to for people to understand where it's coming from and to have that audience loyalty, that it isn't purely just a brand or the artist delivering that show. But that's more from the respect of, of it, it being good for us and easier for us to deliver those shows because people trust it rather than any need for us to have any acknowledgement for it. Yeah, I guess I wanted to think about the, the sort of nature of throwing uh, events in big spaces generally. Um, I'm just kind of thinking, Alice, from a like, logistical standpoint, so you've got sometimes tens of thousands of people. Would your events get that big? Would it be up to tens of thousands? Yeah, festivals, yes. Yeah, the festivals, yeah. Nothing in venues. Yeah. So um, when you're thinking about elements like um, crowd control and security and just the general flow of people, does this thing come down somewhat to a process of trial and error? Like, how, how does that work on the ground? Uh, no, I mean, yes, there's always an element of trial and error. Um, but generally, it's it's thought out from the start. Um, I mean, I think one thing for us is that there's two things that I love, a sign and a one-way system. Those are my two favourite things. Get Put yourself in the, in the psychology of you're out on a night out, you're drunk, you're not really thinking about where you're going you just want to get into the room to see whichever dj you want to see and you just need to put yourself in that mindset ne try and never make people walk into each other that's why a one-way system is good because that just creates aggro and no salmon swimming upstream exactly yeah, okay. um and and signpost everything uh yeah and i think sometimes there's things that pe people you know people look at the fact that sometimes we use tokens at our shows they don't love that but Sometimes it's a necessity. Sometimes we have to make things a bit boring. But in the end, people do see the benefits mm. of it. Um, Why do you need to use tokens? What's the uh, what's it's, usually the logistical reason? It's to do it's to do with cash management really right, and okay. speed of service at the bars. So if you hand over a token, you are handing over something that is a complete transaction. You don't have to wait for any change. So that bartender is only serving you once rather than serving you turning around, going to the till and then coming back and giving you your change. Um, and also from a cash management point of view, when you've got 180 bar staff on site, that's 180 people holding your money. Uh, whereas if you sell tokens, that's only 30 people holding your money. Sure. And you yeah. can hire those people directly. It's just safer, easier for insurance, all those, all those kind of things. And actually, I think that the, I think we proved with, through the trials we did at Printworks that actually you might have to queue once more at the start to buy your tokens, but the speed of service at the bar is actually is actually a lot faster with tokens than, than the other way. And we've also tried all of the RFIDs and all those kind of different things as well. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, so far out of everything we've tried, and, and we've, we've, we're quite hungry to look at these different opportunities and find better ways of doing it but nothing 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 at the moment beats that for us and it's it's a, it's a difficult wrangle sometimes in terms of the um you can see that some people sort of don't mind it some people definitely don't like it and it's, it's but it's de and there, but there isn't an easy answer to it so it's uh, it's one of the things that if you're if you're in a sort of transitory spaces that and you've got a large volume of people coming in to to, to handle money it's it's it kind of sometimes you've just got to be practical it's also the solution that will never break yeah so i would really like we've talked a lot recently about um, going to uh, contactless payment or cards only but then what do you do if the whole network goes down no nobody can pay for anything at field day, yeah. yeah so it's a, it's a very difficult one to do yes technology is brilliant at the moment but it's just not quite there there are certain things as well that the RFID really works if you've got a camping festival um, but on a one-day show, it's just so much admin for a person to go through to be able to turn up, get their wristband loaded up with money. Then when they leave, they have to try and get a refund. Maybe it's an after-show thing. It's just a, it's a lot of yeah, volume of information. I mean, like the other thing that we tried at Arcadia recently was uh, reusable cups. You know, it's another thing. It's another yeah, the waste. The, yeah. the yeah, we'd we'd love to not be using plastic cups at our shows, but what we found when we use the reusable cups again, it's just too much information for a ten-hour show where people are just turning up. They want to have a good time. They don't want to think about whether they got to hold on to their cup and all that. Yes, you know, it kind of worked, but we found out that we thirty-three thousand reusable cups ended up in landfill. So. 
it's like, you know, from a from the public's point of view, they think it looks great, but actually from behind the scenes when you're really looking at the statistics, it's it doesn't necessarily work. And I think there's it's quite hard operationally with a lot of what we do is that to, to people online, they just see the bare bones of, of what, what we're saying. And actually there's been so much research that's gone into something and they don't necessarily understand the reasons why we've chosen the final route that we have. And yeah, so back to the kind of trial and error thing, sometimes we have to go through a few trials and sometimes there's a few errors and then you realise that... Sometimes if it isn't broke, stick with what you know. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, what do you think on balance is the most difficult thing about um, throwing an event in in a space like in the spaces like you do? Yeah, I think those those decisions operationally are, are really complex, where there is no right answer. There's quite a few things that we've talked about: payment systems, cups, uh, waste disposal queuing times number of staff none of those things are 100% predictable and on the face of of it, it it might look to the public it might look like a simple decision but actually there's many months that has gone into into planning uh, a certain decision and also sometimes finance comes into it you know uh, I would love to be able to allow everybody just to have free drinking water all the time but we'd be bust if that's what we did <laughs> i think the, spa the spaces we use are because they're unusual locations that's exactly kind of the clue really is uh, these things aren't haven't been built to be venues mm. they are they are spaces we're taking which weren't designed to be holding music events we we've kind of repurposed them almost and actually by repurposing them the, the costs are high the, the the management of these spaces is is a lot more difficult uh, i think unfortunately we we live in a world where people do still kind of look at promoters and think there's some kind of fairly kind of kind of clandestine reason for us doing something or, or slightly dishonest about it because it seems to have carried over that is the thought people kind of seem to be very quick to blame the promoter for something um, they will kind of put the aspersion out there when you give the explanation to them and it is the genuine explanation they still don't quite want to digest the genuine explanation if you want to if you, if you i mean it's a lot easier to explain how something works operationally when the building has been planned and built to that kind of way but the way we do it, you can't, and there's, well, there has to be reasons for it. It was Will's phrase that you said uh, on another interview where you said, uh, never become a promoter. You're the first person to get blamed and the last person to get paid. Um, and how about from uh, the sound perspective? I mean, I guess we've uh, touched on that a little bit. I mean, uh, what's the approach on you guys' side? Um, I assume, given the range of venues you're using, that, everyone just has to be completely different would that be accurate i mean the, the set the setup sound is different in every every space we do it is different in the spaces different in the rooms in the individual spaces themselves i mean they all come out come back with different demands i mean for for instance main room of tobacco dock uh is what is a 16th century or whatever it is uh kind of tobacco building basically which has a, gla a glass which ha which has a glass roof so obviously has m with neighbors just on the outside of it so the management of creating decent sound there is a very different problem to sound uh, in the car park or sound at junction two or any other of the spaces we look at yeah and over the years we've tried lots of di lots of different sound systems and we've just heard a, well we're always hearing about new things we want to try and uh, and it's just about trying to constantly get the best out of it and, and i think it some of it comes down to some of our preferences and uh, and, and the actual space where the residents are and all that kind of stuff as well so uh, mm. Technology is always naturally evolving, so we're constantly exploring what, what's what's better. Mm. Yeah, I, I, that's a really good point. It's totally subjective, and uh, and what, what some people. I mean, there was some people. I, I saw one complaint from one of the stages at Junction Two. Um, yeah, last year that said it was it was it was a bit too loud and it was too bassy, and then someone else about three comments down said it was the best sound that he'd, he'd ever heard, and I think that sort of summarised it perfectly. I guess it's quite an easy thing to throw out there, isn't it? Bad sound, you know. It's kind of a classic online bad sound you should get yourself some function one speakers yeah all right <laughs> delete or just yeah. fix everything yeah yeah well, to, to be honest i mean I, I, I don't think their 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 opinion is less valid than anybody else's i mean like 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 what says it's subjective you know for one person what sounds fantastic may sound terrible to the next person it, it, it is quite hard to to have an answer for all 100 percent
you produced an event at uh, Olympic Park um, last month. Um, you got a couple more coming up with Elro. Yeah. You're also doing the Innovision show at the Royal Albert Hall in September. Yeah. Um, so that's Richie Horton at the Roundhouse. Richie Horton at the Roundhouse, yeah. Max Cooper at Coco. Yeah. Max Cooper at Coco. Uh, so Do you want any more plugs the, you need to get involved or anything else we're about to announce? <laughs> <laughs> so given the sort of uh, size, uh, you know, the scale and visibility of these shows, are you uh, guys at all concerned that it's going to be difficult to continually, like, better yourselves? I don't, I don't. I don't. It's a competition for us to better ourselves. I, I think it is. It, it's about delivering exciting comp- co- um, kind of content in different environments. Um, I think. I think for me, one of the concerns at Printworks was, and one of the reasons that kind of powered our leaving was was the idea of doing so many shows in one space and actually kind of using alternative locations like the Royal Albert Hall, the Roundhouse, Tobacco Dock, Fountain Studios. It allows us to to put on shows that feel, look, and are, are all different. Really, it's just a bit. It's exciting and allows mm. us then to 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 effectively not starved not not kind of oversaturate the market i guess or to kind of cannibalize our own ticket sales yeah, i think we I touched on earlier just about those things being exciting and i think that um yeah booking different spaces is always exciting hunting for new hunting for new venues is always exciting the idea that of putting on an electronic music show in the royal albert hall i think there's, there's certainly part of it i mean uh, i think for all three of us where's that uh, there's the Fuck! Do you think we can do that? Which is which is really which is really exciting, and 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 I remember feeling that as the first time I walked into Junction Two, the the main stair, the, the bridge stage is on an island, and we had to build three bridges in order to make that viable. And it's just that kind of, this is amazing. Can we make it work? And mm. that, I think that's a lot of what drives us. And so as long as we can keep finding new challenges, then I don't, I don't think there's any 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 worry about sort of trying to surpass ourselves. Five elements! <laughs> 